Your mind has been conditioned to search for cheap stocks, inexpensive stocks, stocks that are called undervalued. And this word undervalued has been used for so long in investing that it's basically synonymous with investing. The goal of investing is to simply scan through companies and figure out which ones are the most undervalued, which ones are selling cheapest. This has been the often quoted strategy of Warren Buffett. Buffett is quoted saying price is what you pay, value is what you get. And in terms of valuation, when we're looking at individual companies, there's no easier way to assign whether or not a company is undervalued or overvalued than by the P.E. ratio, the price of the company compared to its forward earnings. This is a price to earnings multiple of the company. And to many investors, whether or not a company's overvalued or undervalued relies heavily on this P.E. ratio, the bright line typically being a 20 P.E. Companies like Apple that are above a 20 P.E., well, they can be looked at as overvalued. Companies like Intel, with a lower than 20 PE, currently sitting at 14, this company is undervalued. A company like Microsoft, 28 PE, overvalued. A company like Paramount Global, a 9.4 PE, undervalued. Now this may seem like an oversimplification, but this is how a lot of value investors are doing analysis today. And why wouldn't they? Buying cheap companies, companies with low price to earnings ratios, is what responsible investors do. It's what intelligent investors do. It gives you a feeling of superiority. You're buying inexpensive companies, value stocks. You're not like one of those hype investors running into the high multiple companies. You're a responsible investor, putting your money to work at the best value possible. Well, that all sounds great, but there's one big problem to this thought process, and it's this guy right here. His name is Terry Smith. One of the things that some value fund managers say is the way they're able to make returns for you is by buying significantly cheaper stocks and waiting for that re-rating. Is there a risk then with your strategy that you're paying over the odds that, the, that these stocks are expensive? The strategy that this interviewer just described is exactly what I'm outlining here. Value investors looking to buy cheap stocks and waiting for them to be re-rated at a higher multiple. This is the traditional definition of value investing, buying cheap companies and waiting for them to re-rate. And this is Terry Smith's response to this. Yeah, you're right. That's how some value fund managers seek to do it. Um, I have to say, looking at the average results of the industry, not very many of them seem to manage to achieve outperformance with that. Now, that's a little bit of a burn right there. Terry, you didn't have to go that hard on the entire industry. But what he says is true. The so-called value investors in the investment industry, in most cases, do not generate alpha. They don't beat the market over any consistent basis. They have high volatility, and they charge expense ratios on top of that that don't justify their performance. Overall, value investing in the professional industry has been an absolute joke. Most investors have not performed better than the index, and Terry Smith stands alone in this category. He is one of the very few that has consistently outperformed the index across multiple benchmarks. Terry Smith's equity fund called Fundsmith has had stellar performance, even at its large size of now $29 billion approximately in assets under management, it's continued to outperform its benchmark indexes. It's outperformed the equity markets, the UK bonds, and of course cash, and it's done it by a huge amount. It's had 16% annualized returns since inception, compared to the equity market, which is the total stock market's 11.8% return. To give you an idea of how much that means over this time period, Fundsmith has total returns since inception of 491.9%. The equity markets, the comparable benchmark, has returned 
269.7%. The outperformance has been nearly double over this time period. And then even more impressive with that outperformance is he hasn't accomplished it by taking on excessive risk, concentrated positions, and results that are unlikely to repeat. He's done it by consistent investing in high-quality companies. He's had very low variance month-to-month performance. You can look at it, and there's not many drawdowns in his fund. He has a better Sorrentino rating than the overall indice, meaning that in measurable risk, Terry Smith is outperforming while taking on less risk. Overall, this performance has been accompanied by less drawdowns, less volatility, and less severe bear markets. And Terry Smith isn't shy about what's led to this outperformance and what he believes will lead to continued outperformance in the full of time. His strategy is simple. Avoid bad companies and invest in good companies. One of the problems of owning the bad companies in in life is whilst you're waiting for those companies, the sort of steel companies and the chemical companies and the airlines and the banks of this world to have an event, uh, which is what people are really waiting for, a change of management, uh, a takeover, the business cycle to turn up, they basically destroy value just the same as it would destroy value for you personally if you took in money at a cost of 10% and you invested it at five. Bad companies are companies that earn low returns on their invested capital. They're companies that take money in at 10% and they invest it at 5%. That destroys shareholder wealth. And Terry doesn't invest in those companies, no matter how seemingly cheap or inexpensive they are. He invests in what he calls good companies. Companies we own take in money at a cost of, let's call it 10%, and they make 30%. You can rely on the fact that we may get the share price right or wrong when we buy them, but whilst they're sitting there in that portfolio, they consistently create value. So that's what our screening process is about. It's about looking for companies that right across the business and economic cycle have fundamentals that actually create value by making a high return on capital in cash. This is a dramatic difference than the traditional way of looking at value investing. Traditionally, value investing has looked something like this. You screen for companies that are on the surface cheap. We can take the example of Citigroup. This is a cheap stock fundamentally speaking, when you look at some of the basic valuation metrics. We look at an 8 Ford P.E. ratio. That's a very low P.E. ratio, half of what the S&P 500 is. The price to book value is 0.5. So on paper, this company looks very cheap. Maybe we could invest in this company and wait for it to be re-rated by investors back to its appropriate fair value of a, let's say, 12 Ford P.E. ratio or a one price to book value. And as it gets re-rated, the price goes up, we make money, and then we can search for the next cheap stock to make more money on. That is a traditional definition of value investing. And that is not what Terry Smith does. Instead of investing in companies that are cheap and may become fair valued, Terry Smith invests in companies that create value. They generate value every single year that they do business. And whether or not they're cheap or expensive, they have a high probability of continuing to create a lot of value for shareholders. Have fundamentals that actually create value by making a high return on capital in cash. Companies that have fundamentals in creating high returns on invested capital in cash. Now, luckily for us, we can take a look at the specific holdings that Terry Smith has in his portfolio. Let's go ahead and look at the very top one here, Microsoft with a 10.61% weighting. This is by far the largest holding in his portfolio, and it's almost a 4% weighting greater than the second place one. So he has a lot of money invested in Microsoft. Microsoft trades at a 28 Ford PE ratio. This looks like an expensive company. A 28 PE, when lots of companies are selling for 15 and 17 and 18 Ford PEs, Microsoft's sitting here at a 28. Yet this is the biggest holding in Fundsmith's portfolio. Most investors believe that Microsoft's expensive. 
Terry Smith does not. The next company is one that's less known called IDEXX Laboratories. It's a healthcare company. This one trades at an astounding 46 forward PE ratio. Now, most of us would assume that this company is overpriced because of the very high multiple of price to earnings. But Terry Smith and Fundsmith may disagree. The company is at a 6.8 weighting in their portfolio. The next one after that is Estee Lauder. This is also at a very high weighting in their portfolio of 5.4%. Estee Lauder is a makeup company that owns a lot of premium makeup brands, but the company currently trades at a 32 PE ratio. So far, his top weighted companies are all way more expensive on a price to earnings than the rest of the market. 28, 46, 32, these are high multiple companies. We can continue on with this list. We have another healthcare company, SYK. This one's finally a little bit more reasonable. It's only at a 23 Ford PE ratio, not quite as expensive as the rest of the companies in his portfolio. After that, we have a real value stock here, Philip Morris. This one trades only at a 17 Ford PE ratio. But then we get back to more expensive companies. Right underneath Philip Morris is McCormick at a 5.3% weighting. McCormick is that flavor company. It makes lots of spices and it has flavor science for different companies. And this one is another premium high multiple valuation. It trades at a 26.7 Ford PE ratio. We can continue on looking at basically all of his top holdings that compile his entire portfolio. The next one after that at a 4.97 weighting is Intuit. Intuit trades at a 33 price to earnings multiple. This is another so-called expensive company in Terry Smith's portfolio. After that, we have Pepsi. Everyone knows this company. It's at a 4.49% weighting. Pepsi trades at a 26 Ford earnings. These are all overvalued, every single one of them. How can Terry Smith outperform the market by investing in a basket of seemingly overvalued companies? And after Pepsi, the same trend continues. All of these companies trade at high multiples relative to the rest of the market, leading many investors to believe that these companies are overvalued. Now, this is the part that's confusing. Looking over his portfolio, it appears that every single company is overvalued based on the price to earnings multiple. But then we look again at his historical performance, and since 2011, he's dramatically outperformed all the major benchmarks nearly doubling the world market index. And even when we slice up different timelines and zoom into different periods, for instance, from 2017 to current day, Fundsmith has continued to outperform the benchmark index. It hasn't had any type of arc-like sell-off, any 70% drawdown. Even in the most recent drawdown, they're still outperforming the broad market indices. Even when companies outside of their portfolio are doing particularly well, like oil companies, for example. Fundsmith is still prevailing. If the purpose of a value investor is to determine the value of a company, this is a perplexing problem. If we can't use simple metrics like the P-E ratio to accurately determine the value of a company, then what metrics can we use? When I started investing to begin with, I had many of the same simple views that a lot of new investors have. If a company has a low P-E ratio, that company is cheap there's more value there. If a company has a high P.E. ratio, that company's expensive. It's overvalued. But Terry Smith and other investors have called into question this way of doing valuation. That simple metrics like this don't accurately lead to the true value of a company. And he offers a different method in determining the real value of companies like Pepsi, like Estee Lauder, or like Microsoft. So with how quote-unquote expensive all these companies are that Terry Smith owns in his portfolio, you can imagine how he's constantly bombarded with concerns and questions about valuation of these companies. Investors are looking at these companies and saying, Terry, 
These companies seem very expensive compared to the alternatives in the rest of the market. Aren't you concerned about valuation? Well, yes, Terry Smith is. Don't overpay, second leg of our strategy. This is probably the most vexed part of our strategy over the years. People are always worried about whether we're overpaying. We worry about whether we're overpaying. You'll see last year we finished the year with a, a free cash flow yield of um, 2.7 cents. So take the free cash flow that our companies have generated after paying for everything except the dividend, which is a distribution from the cash flow that we uh, own. And you'll see that it was 2.7% when that is divided by their market value. Um, how does that compare with the index? Well, you can see there 5.4% for the FTSE. The companies we own are about twice as highly rated, have half the yield of the FTSE. There's something that Terry Smith does interesting there that I don't see a lot of investors doing. He looks at the historical free cash flow yield of his fund compared to the rest of the market. And this is something that we have in Qualtrum. The free cash flow yield, like he described, is basically the trailing 12-month yield of the free cash flow of the company. So it gives you a multiple or a reference of how much free cash flow your company's generating based on its last 12 months. Now, Fundsmith's equity fund has a free cash flow yield of 2.7%, which compared to the FTSE 100 non-financials, is roughly half as much. Another way of stating that is his companies are trading at roughly double the free cash flow multiple as the rest of the market. But the verbiage that Terry Smith uses here, the actual words he uses, are not cheap and expensive in this case, he uses highly rated and lowly rated. Notice how he calls his fund more highly rated. Um, how does that compare with the index? Well, you can see there 5.4% for the FTSE. The companies we own are about twice as highly rated, have half the yield of the FTSE. He says they're about twice as highly rated, is the words he uses. And this is almost interchangeable from cheap to expensive. Highly rated, meaning expensive. Lowly rated, meaning cheap. And he goes on to immediately explain why he doesn't think it's a problem. He doesn't really consider it a concern that his companies have twice the rating of the rest of the market. I personally wouldn't worry about that a lot because I think an awful lot of the stuff in the FTSE is very poor quality stuff that's not going to produce great long-term returns for you. Terry Smith takes a long-term view and he sees that even though these companies have a higher current free cash flow yield, in terms of their long-term future, they're not going to generate as much cash because they're lower quality companies. Now he goes on to compare his valuation of his fund to the S&P 500. We're still a bit more expensive than the S&P. You can see there 3.6%. Uh, now, um, yeah, we are more expensive, probably about 25% more than the S&P. Now, in this case, Terry Smith used the words expensive and cheap. And this is the common terms. These are the common verbiage that value investors use. Low PE ratio companies are cheap and high PE ratio companies are expensive. But notice how when Terry Smith talks through this, he's very intentional about the words that he uses. And he tries to substitute cheap for lowly rated and expensive for highly rated, because that more accurately describes his investing theory and how he views valuation. What you've got to ask yourself is, yes, we are more highly rated, but does that's not expensive if the quality of our companies is even more significantly higher than the index, than the, uh, the rating on the shares would suggest. And so he considers his companies more highly rated. On the surface, they look more expensive. But when you look at their comparative qualities, he believes they're actually cheaper. So even though they're highly rated companies, still in aggregate, he thinks that he's buying the best value, the cheapest companies in the market. Are these companies... 25% better than the index, 50%. Yeah. When you look at the range of those figures, whereabouts to get you, and there's a clue at the bottom of this table, you can see the free cash flows on our companies grew 
20% last year, or as we call it in the analytical uh, uh, team as a technical term, quite a lot. Terry Smith's companies are more expensive on a free cash flow basis, but the truth of the matter is they grow free cash flow much faster than the average of the index, and they have less likelihood of being disrupted, and they have longer lifelines than most companies. So even though they're more highly rated, on the surface they look more expensive, in aggregate they're cheaper. That's basically telling you that, yeah, we we have got slightly more highly rated companies, but they're growing faster than the market and they've got better operating ratios. Um, Because I think what we're trying to get away from in, in representing this to you is the idea that lowly rated equals cheap and highly rated equals expensive. It depends what you're getting. It's like anything else in life that you buy. The thing we're trying to get away from is the idea that lowly rated equals cheap and highly rated equals expensive. It's like everything else in life, It depends on what you're getting. One of the interesting things is when you look at different things to buy in any aspect of life, most people are very diligent and thoughtful in the way that they do analysis on their purchase. You can take a home, for example. When people are buying a home, Peter Lynch always noted that they ask all the right questions. They do the right research when they're buying a home. They look at the location of it. They look at the price, which is the price per square foot or the total price of the house compared to the lot size. There's different metrics you can look at for the price of a home. They go through and look at the style of the home, the fixtures. They look at the kitchen counter and if it's marble, they look at the flooring. They look at the foundation. They look at the amenities. And then they'll also do analysis on the quality of the nearby schools, the location of it, the proximity to different things in the city. They'll look at the taxes and the cost of living there the size of the property, if it's part of a homeowner's association. When people look at buying a home, in most cases, they do some thoughtful and diligent research. They know that it's an important purchase that they should put time and energy behind. But when people look at buying a stock, in many cases, it's the exact opposite. They look at one metric like the PE ratio and immediately come to conclusions of whether or not that company's cheap or expensive. This would be similar to buying a home and only looking at the price per square feet whether it's $100, $150, or $200. Not concerning yourself about the location, that the home exists in a high crime area, or that it's across the street from a railroad, or the style or the size of the house, that's not really important. As long as the price is cheap, none of this other stuff matters. It doesn't matter the quality of the schools, the taxes or cost of living, if there's a homeowners association, or any of this other qualitative stuff. The big thing that investors focus on when it comes to stocks is the price. And what Terry Smith is wanting people to do is to take a more holistic approach to valuation. Instead of just looking at the price, consider the other attributes the same way you would if you were shopping for a home. Now, I use the example of a home, but Terry Smith uses the example of a car. It depends what you're getting. It's like anything else in life that you buy. Fords don't cost the same as Ferraris, right? Uh, And therefore, the fact that one is priced lower than the other doesn't in itself tell you anything about the bargain that you're getting. Now, if we're supposed to have in-depth research that considers more than just the price, then what other type of things are we supposed to look at? For a home, we know intuitively what to look at. We know to look at the schools. We know to look at the home style and location. We know to look at the taxes or the crime rates of the place we're living in. We know all of this stuff intuitively to keep in mind. But with stocks, we don't know intuitively what to look at. It's a little bit more confusing in some cases. Terry Smith's approach resembles that of finding compounders. And I talk about compounders as a term I use to describe companies that have lots of characteristics that most companies in the market do not have. It's not just stocks where the price goes up. 
That's not what defines a compounder. The best definition I've ever found of a compounder is in this Morgan Stanley study from 2013. They say we define compounders as companies with high-quality franchise businesses, ideally with recurring revenues, built-in, dominant, and durable and tangible assets, which possess pricing power, low capital intensity. When evaluating these companies, we focus on franchise quality and durability of financial strength industry position, and management quality. The key financial characteristic of compounders is that they enjoy sustainable high returns on invested capital, ROIC. They say that it's generated by a combination of recurring revenues, recurring meaning that they're getting money continually, high gross margins, and low capital intensity. This combination helps support strong free cash flow generation, crucially, that must either be reinvested or distributed to shareholders. Compounders also tend to be relatively robust in economic downturns, with steady operational cash flow and no excess leverage. Profits are typically less sensitive to economic conditions given the repeat purchases at high growth margins. This combined with the low cyclicality of top-line demand, because these companies typically sell non-discretionary items, help insulate compounders from the negative cyclical impacts of operating cash flow. These characteristics, coupled with modest top-line growth, have helped ensure that intrinsic value of compounders continues to grow over time. Now, this definition of compounders, I think, is obviously thorough, but it's also difficult to wrap our heads around. They have a lot of characteristics, and how do you boil this down into a realistically investable thesis? Well, Terry Smith has actually done this. He's taken the definition of a compounder, the one that we just read, and he boils it down to five different ratios, five different things that he tracks for his portfolio to try to determine whether or not the companies he owns are long-term compounders. And this is an objective scientific way of looking at solving this problem. The first thing that he highlights is ROCE. The return on capital employed is very similar to returns on invested capital. If you look at it, the return on capital at our companies last year, ROCE in the table, return on capital employed, was 28%, a recovery from the prior year when there was a bit of a downturn caused by the pandemic. This is highly satisfactory insofar as it's back to where it has been in the long term. And you'll see that it's significantly ahead of where the index are, whether it's the S&P or the FTSE. So while his companies are more highly rated, they have much better returns on capital employed than the rest of the index. And this makes it so they create more long-term wealth than the rest of the index. To put it in English, for every pound or dollar of capital we own in these companies in our portfolio, we're getting 28 pence or cents of of profit return, whereas if you're in the index, you're getting about 15 pence. Our companies are delivering around about twice as much return. And I think that's the single most important metric to look at when you look at how companies performing. When I've gone through and done analysis on the companies that I'm investing in, one of the metrics that I've started to look at is this return on capital employed. And the companies that I've targeted have a particularly high return on capitals employed. And I've come to believe that this is such an important metric that I'm leaving out of my analysis that I'm actually going to be adding this metric into Qualtrim. I'm going to make it really easy to look at the long-term historical return on capital employed for every single company in my portfolio. Because without this, you don't know how effectively your company's reinvesting its profits. So in comparison to doing home shopping, the return on capital employed is like looking at the location. If you buy a stock without looking at how effectively the company can reinvest its capital, it's kind of like buying a home without looking at what location it is. You don't even know whether or not you're buying a home in a high crime area or a low crime area. After that, the next metric that he looks at is gross margin. This is one that I think most people are familiar with. Gross margins, these are the 
difference between revenues and cost of goods sold. Companies take in stuff. They take in uh, ingredients or components or services and do something with them and turn them into products and services that they sell. This is the markup, the difference between the two. Our companies are at 64%, which you'll see is pretty rock solid down the years. Basically, in English, they're making stuff for 36 and selling it for 100. If you look over at the index, you'll see around 45%. Companies in the index are making things for 55 and they're selling it for 100. The gross margins, like he described, are simply how much the company can make something for and then how much they can sell it for. That's their gross margin. And the companies that Terry owns have a much higher average gross margin than the rest of the index. If you're looking at a stock and you don't consider the gross margins or operating margins of the business, it's like buying a home, but not even doing your due diligence, not even walking through the place. And maybe the home has fractures and it has breaks in the foundation. That cheap home might end up being a lot more expensive than it originally looked. And Terry Smith also mentions that gross margins are possibly the best hedge against inflation. That is really what controls the pricing power of the company. Now, after looking at the returns on capital employed and the margins of the business, the next big metric that Terry Smith looks over his portfolio is called cash conversion. It's the amount of net profits the company generates compared to the amount of free cash flow. We can take the example of Domino's Pizza. This is a company that I have in my portfolio. If we look at the 2021 net income of the company, it was $491 million. So 491 net income in 2021. If we compare this to the cash flow, they made $504 million in free cash flow. So Domino's actually made more money in free cash flow than in net income. That means they had above 100% cash flow conversion. We can take a counterexample here. Netflix. This is a company that has very low cash flow conversion. In fact, it's extremely low. If we compare their net income in 2021 of $5.1 billion with their free cash flow in 2021, their free cash flow in 2021 was minus $131 million. So net income of $5 billion free cash flow of minus 131 million. Right now, Netflix has a negative cash flow conversion, and that's telling about the company. Terry Smith likes to focus on companies that have very high conversion rates of cash flow, but also companies that have consistent conversion rates of cash flow. In this period of time, in a rare instance, the actual indices are outperforming Terry Smith's cash flow conversion. But he explains why this is the case and it's not likely to last. Cash conversion, our companies converted 95% of their profits into cash last year. Um, the index had a particularly good performance. You'll see out there uh, producing somewhere in the region of 100 and, uh, 108 to 124% of profits in cash. This is a, is a bit of an unusual feature. And the index is performing particularly well at the moment for a couple of rather strange reasons. Bear in mind this is a ratio. And if you make your profits go down more than your cash flow, your cash conversion looks good. It's not a very good place to be. <laughs> but nonetheless, that's how the ratio comes out. And the reason that's happening is Companies in the index, by and large, had bigger falls in profitability than our companies did. And at the same time, because of supply chain difficulties, they had an awful lot of stock out. So their working capital went down invested in the business. So they didn't make as much profit, but they converted more of the profit into cash. So that's his explanation of why the index has a higher cash conversion than his portfolio. Now, the final metric that Terry Smith looks at here is called interest cover. And this is a way of looking at the actual leverage of a company when you look at their profitability compared with their obligations and interest payments. Uh, and Lastly, interest cover. So is all this wonderful operating performance that we're getting from our companies being delivered with a lot of uh, borrowed money and balance sheet uh, trickery? No. Um, our companies last year had 23 times interest cover. So their profits 
compared with what they're paying out in interest and lease rentals, was 23 times. I mean, they're, they're, this is a very strong balance sheet businesses, basically. You can see they delevered last year at 16 times the year before. The index, not in bad position. If you look, eight to nine times interest cover is pretty good. But clearly, these are very conservatively financed companies. They, they're not producing this performance out of financial engineering. That's simple enough. His companies, in terms of the profits they generate compared to their interest payments, is a much higher multiple, which is a good thing compared to the rest of the index. So you can see in terms of doing valuation and analysis that Terry Smith looks at more than just the price of the company. If he's buying a home, he's looking at the returns on capital employed. He's looking at the location of the property, whether it's in a good location. He looks at the cash conversion. He's looking at the neighborhood and seeing if it's low crime area. He looks at the interest coverage. He makes sure the home has nice stainless steel appliances, marble countertops, and nice flooring. Terry Smith does holistic research on a company. That's why he comes to the conclusion that many of the companies that appear to be more expensive in his portfolio are actually in aggregate, all things considered, cheaper. Now, I hope you're enjoying the video so far. Before we move on to the next section, I have to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor. It's FTX US. They have a brand new brokerage account. You can sign up now. It's finally out of beta. It has a very slick interface. You can buy and sell Anytime the stock market's open using fractional shares, they don't do payment for order flow and they're part of FINRA and SIPC insured. So if you want to sign up for this brokerage, make sure to use the refer code Carlson, C-A-R-L-S-O-N. That'll give you $10 when you do your first $100 trade. Now I know anytime I point out that there's other important fundamentals to take into consideration in terms of valuation than just the PE ratio, it also brings up the problem that many cases people will swing this pendulum way too far to the other side and use these type of videos and this type of content to justify buying seemingly any company at any price. And in most cases, lots of companies that are higher prices are not worth the extra price. It takes a lot of convincing to justify paying a 28 Ford PE ratio. It takes even more to justify paying a 30 plus or a 40 plus. To justify paying a 30 plus PE ratio, a company would have to be completely phenomenal with all of these other metrics, have extremely high returns on capital employed, have 70% plus gross margins, have high operating profit margin, good cash conversion, incredible interest coverage, and beyond that, have good brand value, franchise quality, and long-term durability with the company. It has to have these metrics to justify having a high P.E. ratio. So I'm not suggesting to ignore the P.E. ratio, to not consider it, or to just buy any company at any valuation. That's not the purpose of this video. But it's when you do analysis, you're buying an actual company. There's lots of operating metrics to look at, that lead different companies to have more long-term value creation than other companies. And lots of those metrics are very simple and easy to look at, but they're routinely ignored in favor of different valuation metrics. And remember that there's lots of ways to invest in the market. There's lots of ways of earning money. Many people are good at investing in low PE companies, buying all the financials and cyclicals and oil companies, and timing the ups and downs of these highly volatile companies at just the right times. They can make money doing that, but that's not the approach I'm taking. I will always consider the price to earnings ratio, the free cash flow yield, and other valuation metrics in every single company that I own, but I'm also going to be considering the franchise durability, the returns on capital employed, the margins of the company, the cash flow conversion, and the leverage of the company. I'll have more than just one consideration when making a purchase. So I hope you enjoyed this video. It's a little bit different than usual, but I thought this is an important subject to talk about. 
Having said that, I'll have more content out in the future. We'll be going over the news. We'll be going over earnings report and other important subjects. So make sure you subscribe to the channel and I'll see you in the next one.